Good afternoon. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. A game yesterday. Well, in the words of Blue Jays interim manager John Schneider, that sucked. Direct quote there. Jays lose 6-5. Big old rain delay after they take the lead. They lose Zach Pop to the rain delay. Adam Simber allows a run. Jimmy Garcia allows a two-run shot from Rugnet Odor, who, for better and worse, insists on being the main character of every Jays game. Every year, it feels like. Almost gave it back with an error, too. Thanks for trying. He had a couple of them in that game. There was also catcher's interference. All that's to say, there was a lot of nonsense, and the Jays couldn't quite take advantage the bats haven't been ice cold of late but they haven't been doing what we expect them to since the trade deadline or august if you prefer that calendar jays are averaging 4.25 runs per game doesn't sound too bad but they were up almost at five prior to the deadline 4.85 Now, how big a difference is that extra 0.6 runs a game? Well, that was the third time they've lost by one run in the last week. That that record in one-run games everyone was so excited about earlier in the year, even when they were playing poorly, they could only win one-run games. It's gone all the way back to 22 and 17. We kind of hit the drum a bunch earlier in the year that record in one run games is not something teams and managers show an ability to do year over year. But some research I've done suggests it's at least sticky within the year because you have a good bullpen, whatever. Not the case here. That has regressed pretty much exactly to where you'd expect it for a team that's 10 games over 500. Nothing special about the Jays in one run games now. And again, three one-run losses in the last week. At least Bo Bichette homered twice yesterday. Sure. It's uh, Bo's insistence to zig when the team zags. All right. Uh, good for him. Nice to see him get uh, two homers in that one, though. Part of the reason the Jays didn't... Part of the reason the Jays, rather, needed to score a lot of runs is that Alec Manoa didn't have the best of starts. You certainly can't hang this on Manoa. He gave up three earned over five innings, uh, but scattered eight hits, a walk, hit by a pitch, struck out five, not his best. Even before the rain delay, Manoa was coming out of the game after 77 pitches. That's when Zach Pop was coming in there. Uh, Manoa laboring a little bit in that one with his command. Got not lucky because... A swing is a swing, but he had another hit by a pitch that the batter just happened to come across on. Originally ruled a wild pitch and then uh, taken back as a hit by a pitch. Not the only thing overturned in that one. There's also the uh, triple play that became not a triple play. Was it yesterday? Was that Monday? Who knows? I can't keep track of uh, the time anymore. But yes, that was yesterday. Two runs end up scoring in the first. They were almost out of it with a triple play. Didn't go down that way. Things feel a little bleak when Alec Manoa isn't 
on. Jays lead in the wild card. Now down to one game on Seattle for the top wild card spot. Just two on Baltimore for that last playoff spot. We're going to try to get the vibes right over the course of this show. We've got Kylie McDaniel of ESPN coming on a little later to talk some health of the franchise long-term stuff. We got Jen McCaffrey coming on to give us the inside scoop on Jackie Bradley Jr., what he's like as a clubhouse person, what he could maybe still offer to this team on the field. And we're going to take a whole bunch of your tweets. You guys have heard me do the concern index on this show before. It's a group therapy edition of the concern index. I got like 300 tweets in response uh, to what I thought was just kind of a nonsensical uh, tweeted out there. So now it's a part of the show. Before we get to any of that, though, joined by our pal from the Spin Ray podcast over at The Athletic, Drew Fairservice. Drew, how are you, man? I'm here to align the vibes. That is my job, and I take it very seriously. All right. Well, let's start with uh, the most optimistic thing. Uh, the Baltimore Orioles are pretty good, eh? You know what? That is a heck of a ball club over there. No, they have some, they have some real baseball players now. It's a, a little bit uh, – like it's a hard to process at the same time they have good players on the Orioles for the first time in like a decade. Yeah, it's uh, it's especially irritating because this wasn't supposed to happen yet. And we are a Boston Red Sox spending spree from being back to having five good teams in the American League East. Uh, luckily, the Boston Red Sox are as they are. Um, okay, I want to bounce around a few things with you, Drew. I got to ask first, though. I, I know you did the edit of it the other day, but Edwin Diaz's walkout music. Uh, it's a terrific little bit. It's I, I would put it ahead of Jordan Romano's WWE light show. I'm sure every baseball podcast and radio show at some point or another has done the, what would your walk-up song be if you were a hitter? But it's much, much different as a reliever because you get like a whole minute to build it up. Sometimes even longer than that. Whereas as a hitter, you get like eight seconds. We know the, the BJ Ryan dualities, of the world, the Edwin Diaz stuff, what would your walkout song be as a relief pitcher? Key distinction between that and walk-up song as a batter. That's tough. I, I think it would change all the time. You know, I would be the worst nightmare of the baseball, of the stadium operations team. Um, I, I think you can't go wrong with something that's like heavy and intense. If you're trying to like get yourself pumped up and maybe you want to get people like moshing in the crowd so I think maybe right now, if you if you twisted my arm, I would maybe say permanent by Knock Loose, or maybe Mystery by Turnstile, but more of like a crowd pleaser, get everybody going. Uh, maybe uh, I, I think off the top of my head, those are probably the top two. I I joked online that maybe I would do a ska song <laughs> uh, to get the vibe and get the vibes right. I think I would want to. Uh, do uh, uh, I can't wait by Hepcat. I think that would be a, like a, again very chill, cool vibe. So that that also could uh, is a contender outside of like the Olivia Rodrigo uh, Uber. Oh, of course, yeah, the Olivia Rodrigo, the the next Carly Rae Jepsen album, all that stuff. Uh, by the way, if you are Felix Batista and you are looking for a song now that you are the Orioles closer, Turnstile happens to be a Baltimore band, Drew. So maybe maybe you can nudge. Felix Batista there uh, after he's done playing the Blue Jays. Uh, he doesn't. I think, I, I think that is a, uh, that is a terrific idea. Uh, turns out you can't go wrong. If you feel like Batista, maybe you want to go a little angel dust 
Again, members of Turnstile still based in Baltimore. Lots of options. Lots of options with Baltimore right now. Lots of options. Uh, okay, so Baltimore's on the way up. Boston's the one team that you can kind of point at in the AL East and be like, well, at least someone's bad. Uh, the Jays pulled from that organization yesterday, bringing in Jackie Bradley Jr. I know, Drew, that was a move that you... I mean, I, I guess I was going to say you didn't feel positively about. I, I kind of feel like you were more apathetic about it than anything. Uh, Jackie Bradley Jr., your your quick take on him coming into the mix here. I don't know what he's here to do. What's his job? Is he going to do the same job as, as Bradley Zimmer, but do it worse? I mean, the the bar, like that is a, the, the bar for replacement in terms of what Bradley Zimmer is asked to do uh, is really low. because He does not have to do anything. So, could, Zim, could could Jackie Brown Jr. do it better? Probably. Is he maybe a better right fielder uh, than maybe Zimmer, potentially? Would I have, in hindsight, loved to have seen uh, Bradley Zim, or, uh, Jackie Brown Jr. out there in right field last night when uh, when Ryan Mountcastle hit that double that Ramos Tapia kind of misplayed uh, as a very miscast right fielder? Maybe. But, like, I just don't I don't get it. He's not – he can't hit at all anymore. He can't hit at all. And Jackie Brown Jr. is one of the best outfielders I've ever seen in my entire life. But he's also, I don't know, how old is he now? He's 32. older than, than Bradley Zimmer, that much I know. He's 32. Yeah. Uh, like, the, his best days are behind him. Uh, and, and he just doesn't do I, – I just don't get it. I, I mean, I guess I get it in terms of if they think he's an upgrade over what Bradley Zimmer can offer, if they, if they feel better about sending him into the batter's box, which they have clearly have no faith in Bradley <laughs> Zimmer even getting a single plate appearance, okay. But, like, why? That's my, my question is why. If you look back over the last two years, uh, Zimmer is better than Bradley Jr. at just about everything other than strikeouts, right? Zimmer strikes out more. So maybe that's the thing. They don't like the strikeouts from the one plate appearance he gets every six weeks. So I, I just don't see, unless unless they think there's something in there that they can unlock and turn back the clock and turn him into, you know, an unbelievable outfielder and, a, and a, someone who's a viable option as a to take a plate appearance yeah i i have three kind of sub theories to this i think the honest answer is just they're trying to see, like bring him in and they'll decide between him and zimmer later uh and the way things have worked out here you get a, a couple days look at it so i have three sub theories here you could tell me which one you like the best number one is they want a little bit more championship and playoff experience in that room with the rookie manager, with a pretty young team on the hitting side. Number two is that they have eyes on Raphael Devers in 2024. And we're all going to change our, uh, our approach from <laughs> Shohei Otani to Raphael Devers and getting him in early is uh, a way to start tampering nice and early. And three is that this George Springer thing is going to be longer than a minimum IL stint. I think three is the most likely. Number one, I, I don't necessarily think there's a lot of value in putting a role player in as like the voice of, of experience. Uh, it's him, him to come in and be like, hey guys, I know I play once a week, but this is, this is how we did things when we cheated our way to the 2018 World Series. Like, I don't know how much credibility he would have in that situation, especially because they've already got George Springer, right? How much more leadership and, like, how much more of a clutch October performer do you need than George Springer? Unless, of course, you don't anticipate him being around the club because he's off having things surgically repaired, which is the nightmare scenario. But I guess – if, if, if the Springer injury is worse than, than you think, and now suddenly you need to look more seriously at the depth that you have in your outfield, 
I guess maybe in the, in, with having made some of the moves that they made, that, you know, Samad Taylor or someone who might have been an outside option, someone who was already within the organization that could have been the new fifth outfielder, but now they've made some deals to, 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 to weaken that pool. So now they need someone else to be either the fourth outfielder or the fifth outfielder. Uh, I, I guess I get it, but I just, it's a shame because, or not a shame, it's just hard for me to wrap my head around it because he and Zimmer are so similar. So I just, I'm like, well, maybe could you get someone who like can't field at all, but can hit, or maybe you can get someone who can maybe be a bit more of a base stealer. I don't know that I, I associate Jackie Bradley Jr. with being a base stealer. In my mind, he's all defense all the time. So I don't know, but three seems like the most likely sub scenario. Yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, I put out a tweet earlier. What are you most concerned about uh, with the Blue Jays right now? Not that it's doom and gloom time. They're still in the top wild card spot. They're till, still 10 games over 500. I, I don't mean to say this is all going to blow up any minute now. This is baseball. These these bad weeks where you lose a couple one-run games and everything hurts a lot happen. However, Drew, if we were to rank out the things that we are most worried about carrying over the rest of the season or into a wild card series uh, or something like that. One of the most common answers, at least from the the rational people on Twitter responding um, is that if this George Springer thing is more serious, there's a real trickle down effect on the offensive side here. And we've seen, you know, it's not just because Springer hasn't been there, but the offense has cooled a little bit lately and cooled a little bit since the deadline here. If like, let's ignore the Jackie Bradley Jr. Bradley Zimmer thing, because if either of those guys are playing any kind of meaningful time, uh, things have gone awry, but the George Springer situation in general, how high up on your list of reasons to be worried is that? Uh, truth be told, I, I don't think it's that high up at all. Okay. I, I think I have a lot of faith in the Blue Jays' offense. I think we've seen the 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 adjustments and the and the and the growth and the sort of return to normalcy from Lourdes Gurriel, from Teoscar Hernandez, and then of course we've seen a great week now from Bo Bichette. I'm not worried about them scoring runs. I'm not worried about the outfield defense. I think there's been a lot of stuff talked about recently about the how the Blue Jays' aggressive shifting has really worked. And it's downplayed the fact that they have, they're able to use a guy like Ramel Tapia as a center fielder when that's not really something that he's doing. They've sort of they've they've overcompensated or they've they've effectively compensated for the shortcomings in the, the outfield defense. Uh, George Springer is a great hitter, and you like you would obviously rather have him in the lineup than not. But I think that at this stage, there's only one real hole in the lineup right now, and that's kind of second base. And I, so I'm not, I, and I'm not even worried about that. I think that the Blue Jays are, are yeah, they've, they haven't scored as many runs, but they're still scoring five. You know, they scored five uh, last night, I believe. Uh, they scored five, um, you know, a couple times in Minnesota. They scored nine on the, in the first game of that series. Like, I'm not so worried about the Blue Jays' offense. I think they're going to score. Bobochek coming around is huge. Uh, you know, Teos Hernandez, great story about him on Fangraphs today, yeah. about the adjustment he's made about not swinging at the first pitch and just being a really good and effective hitter who's hard to get out. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. looks great in the leadoff spot, if you ask me, this new version of him. Uh, the only thing they need to change about Lourdes Gurriel is let him know how slow he is, like just like, <laughs> pound it back into his head. So my thing is is, is less about the, the, the offense and more just about the continued um, success in the pitching staff. I mean, you, we've seen just what kind of can happen when they, I mean, you don't, you don't blame Jimmy Garcia. You can't blame, uh, you know, the, the couple runs that, that, that trickled in. Simber gave up one last night. Maybe a little bit of a, a better outfield defense might prevent that one. But 
I think there's just the ongoing quality and strength and performance in the bullpen is, is, is going to be my number one until either they lose or they win the World Series. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, Drew. So you mentioned Tay Oscar that, and he's getting going a little bit here. Ben Clemens has that great piece up at Fangrass. We're actually going to talk to Ben about that on Friday, but one of the takeaways there is that Tasker has significantly changed his approach at the plate when it comes to jumping on the first pitch. And I know that that's something that early count aggression is something that drives people nuts sometimes with Bo Bichette. You see it when Bo's cooking that if he jumps on pitches early in the count, well, often that's a good thing. And that's what makes him hard to uh, pitch against. But last night, his first Homer is a long plate appearance where he doesn't even swing until the fourth pitch of the, plate appearance and then his second home run he fouls off a couple borderline pitches before he gets one he can drive um over the i think it's what six games now that bow's been in the five spot he's got 10 hits he's got a couple extra base hits um are you seeing some of the process changes that you were hoping for from bow with this move i i mean i the process changes, yes. I think they're they are a bit more subtle. You know, I think I think it was Pat Tabler last night who who pointed out that you know Bo. I I have long been a fan and admirer of Bo Bichette's ability to hit the ball to right center field and hit the ball a long way that way. We saw him last night two opposite field home runs, taking advantage of the uh, the high wall, but that's that's relatively short out there in right field at Camden Yards. Um, but it wasn't a matter of him. You know, he was a being aggressive and b kind of catching the ball out front. I think that was the the great point that Tabby made. It's not just so much like letting it get deep and trying to fight it off to get it out to right field. Still being aggressive, still taking you know good hacks and catching the ball out front with a lot of power, but also looking and being able to use the whole field. So those are the kind of adjustments I think you know are a great sign for Bobuchet. I think that that the long at bats, following pitches off, he does that as well as anyone, as well as anyone in the game. Um, and it's, it's a real credit to him, and it's a it's a it's a no small wonder given you know his his swing and what what was said about it when he was drafted. So those are the kind of adjustments I uh, you, you do like to see. Do I think long term am I still a little wary of Bo's like hyper aggressive approach? Absolutely, but I think you can look at a guy like Tay Oscar in this story that 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 Ben wrote about him, and remember that like patience and selectivity don't always have to just turn into walks. That they can be being selective, knowing how you're going to get attacked, looking, going up there looking to do damage, and, and they both do that. They're up, they're up there. Bogusha is always looking to do damage, but I think it's a, he's, he's, when, we, when he's going well, he's letting, that, the, you know, letting the pitches come to him. He's making good swing decisions, which is the big kind of buzzword <laughs> around the Blue Jays, the thing that they teach up and down to the organization. So making good swing decisions, fighting off good pitches, which, again, with his unbelievable hand-eye coordination, he can really do. So that little bit of selectivity, a little bit of an extra aggression, I think it makes me feel good about him moving forward for the rest of this season for, not, for, for if, if nothing else. And, you know, the thing to look for is, okay, pitchers say we're going hard away on Bo. He's taking the ball out to right field. Are we going to be able to come in? Is he going to be able to make that adjustment to turn on, to turn on pitches? Maybe it's still stay aggressive, but also being able to look, use the pull side while still being able to have that kind of away first mentality, which in my mind, is when Bo's at his best. So like really like to see those those adjustments while also both these two guys that we're talking about still staying who they are. They're not trying to be Joey Votto. They're not even trying to be Kevin Biggio. is a very different coach <laughs> than these two guys. They're not just going to go up there being passive. They're still going to be aggressive, but making good swing decisions and having a, a plan while also executing the physical part. I think that's really where Bo Bichette is right in this last week. Right, and, 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 which is you know, all these different moving parts sort of aligning and now he's on fire. And, and that's really what it takes. 
All right, let's uh, swing it to the starting pitching side. We kind of touched on some hot hitters, touched on your bullpen concern. Uh, Alec Manoa last night kind of looked like just a guy. And I, I know you've had some, um, not gripe, but, you know, like, hey, f- you got to figure out this stuff where you're you're hitting a lot of batters and it drops into the left-handed hitters, batter's box when, when you miss. Um, he got away with it a little bit last night. Uh, this isn't to be negative about Manoa. He's obviously the gamer to end all gamers. And, you know, if Kikuchi gets credit for taking it into the sixth after having a tough one, uh, Manoa getting through five in that one is the same kind of situation. Uh, what did you see from Manoa last night? And I guess, are there any flags that come up for you when you see something like Ben Nicholson Smith at sportsat.ca mention in passing in his post game that like, yeah, they're keeping an eye on workload stuff. They're keeping an eye on all the biometrics and stuff like that uh, because he is sixth in the AL in innings pitched as a sophomore. I think that that is a legitimate concern in, in a way. I mean, look, Alec Manoa is an enormous dude. You know, he, he's a big dude. He pitched, he pitched at like a high performance, you know, in the SEC, he was in a program that was, he was there to win. He's been through the ringer in a way. Uh, it's obviously a little bit different than, than pitching in the big leagues, but I absolutely keep those things on, on tap. But I think that what, what to me is kind of going to go hand in hand with that is his ability to sort of not have those non-competitive pitches, right? Not have those where he's trying to bury a slider and throws it into the batter's box where he goes behind somebody where he's, or, you know, when he's, when he's hitting, hitting guys all over the place, you know, he, he, he seems, you know, or off my view of it is that, He's keenly aware of the sort of struggles he's had at points this year against left-handed batters. He's really trying to maybe like, you know, execute really good pitches against them to try to get them out. But I think that, that the more that he can continue to be efficient, uh, you know, you do love to see him battle to your point. And, and he's, he's as good as anybody at that. And I love that about him. I love the way that he can toss a pitch aside, you know, work with two pitches, work with one, just do what he needs to do to try to move the ball around and, and get through the innings and, and the ultimate gamer. But the idea of him kind of just refining some of those pieces, not having those, those non-competitive waste pitches, not beaning guys and getting, creating more problems <laughs> for himself, where if, if he can, if he can clean that up, you know, again, you do, you want him just, just like I said about Teoscar and so you want him to be who he is. He has that edge. He's toned down some of the stuff that if you remember when he first came up, staring guys down and, <laughs> you know, rubbing the ball up and just eyeballing everybody. So I think the more that he can improve that efficiency uh, and then while also being who he is and, and continuing to battle, uh, that will go a long way. And just, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, a hit batter is different than a, than a, than a, than a walk, right? A walk takes a lot more pitches. All it takes is one errant toss to end up with a hit batter, but just the ability to sort of eliminate those non-competitive pitches and continue to battle and get as many innings as he can with an eye to his, uh, with an eye to his, uh, his innings total come the end of the year. Uh, okay, one more before we let you go here, Drew. Jose Brios takes the hill tonight. Uh, at this point, I don't know what he, I don't know what a successful rest of the season looks like for him because you know the ERA is not getting back into that s- typical Jose Brios range at this point. Um, you're seeing things like five, six decent starts in a row, and then another blow up. What would Jose Brios have to do between now and the first week in October for if the Jays have to trot him out? in a third wild card game, which they very well probably will have to, uh, that you're comfortable with that. I think for me, the thing I said about him all season is just his ability to command his fastball. 
And we've seen him, you know, somebody pointed out there's always at home that he has these awful starts. So whatever it is that other way around troubled him. Oh, is it the other way around? Yeah, he had he had the opener that was really bad at home, but otherwise his numbers on the road are are pretty yikes. Okay, so then let's figure out what it is about Toronto that allows him to throw his basketball where he wants it to go, Um, not missing, you know, over the middle of the plate. Like that's his whole thing, and that's the ultimate barometer. And I I can't imagine a world where you go into a playoff series without Jose Barrios starting one of those games. Hey, he's good. He's a good pitcher. He's had amazing outings time and time again for the Blue Jays, even this year. But there are so many of those blow-ups where he just gets hit so hard and is throwing stuff over the middle of the plate way too often. And if you if he has a couple of those starts in a row where he's got no idea where his fastball is going, and then he's just trying to flip curveballs in there to get strikes without getting them hit hard, and then he ends up just you know in that same cycle – that's maybe when I would be like, oh boy, I don't know if we can start this guy in game three or if we're playing against Seattle, whoever. So just the ability to throw his fastball where he wants it to go. If, it's, if the target's outside, he's throwing it to the outside. Or even if, he's, if, if the target's outside and he misses away, misses off the plate away, I'd take that. I'd take that over the <laughs> one that comes back down the center of the plate and just gets hit so hard uh, because the stuff is good and he battles. I mean, look, he, he won't be the first and absolutely he wouldn't be the last guy to have a really tough go after signing a big contract. Like, they call it life-changing money for a reason, right? Like he was a well-paid guy before, but now he's got a whole different kind of rich guy problems. And I, and I, I 100% believe that that first year after you're signing a big, a big contract can be really difficult for some guys. So I don't know if that's, I don't want to be throwing up excuses, but I really just want to hope that he can right the ship this year in terms of when, when he's locating his fastball, get his head right, and then come back in uh, after finishing this year strong, coming back in and maybe pitching an opening day again next year. With a World Series ring on his finger. Who knew? Yeah, there you go. Well, I, I wouldn't recommend pitching with the with the ring on your finger. It's probably not going to fit in your glove very well, or, or you might have trouble gripping the ball. But otherwise, uh, taking the mound with it at least, and then putting it in your pocket like uh, Buddy's cell phone yesterday uh, <laughs> from the Pirates, uh, maybe you could do that. Drew Fair Service of the Spin Rate Podcast over at The Athletic. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out, man, and wish you plenty of future rich guy problems like Jose Barrios. I would love to have rich guy problems. I, I, I welcome them. <laughs> All right, Drew. Thanks, man. Uh, Drew Fair Service of the Spin Rate Podcast at The Athletic. Uh, we bounced around a little bit there. Not my most focused of interviews, but this is kind of the tone of the day. The Jays are not bad by any stretch. They're 10 games over 500. They're in the top wildcard spot, but it doesn't feel like they're playing their best baseball right now. That coming right after a deadline where... This front office massaged at the margins but didn't make a significant addition really has people feel in a certain kind of way, especially when you see Seattle with their new deadline acquisition winning a one nothing game in 13 innings or you're losing back-to-back games to a young upstart Orioles team that's now right behind you in the wildcard race. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to sort through, you know, we did kind of the cons- – unofficial concern index with with drew find out what he is and isn't worried about uh i tweeted that out earlier to see what you guys are most worried about right now we won't get to all of them there were like 300 responses so i appreciate that by the way um thanks so much and you can uh, you can send us uh more at 590 590 if you want don't know we'll get to all of those but that's what we're doing next we've got kylie mcdaniel and jen mccaffrey in the second hour uh, but next segment you guys are the producers we're going through your 
Group Therapy Concern Index next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with J.D., Blake, and Ailish. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. That's kind of the energy around here right now. The Toronto Blue Jays lose 6-5 last night. They blow it after a rain delay. Things haven't gone their way since the trade deadline. A very hot back half of July. And then kind of cooled off. Split two with the Rays. Split four with the Twins. Now down 2-0 to the Orioles, who are right on your tails in the wildcard standings. Jays will wrap that series up tonight. 7.05, first pitch. Ben Wagner on the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. It's Jose Brios against Dean Kramer. We'll tee that one up a little later in the show. Once we have lineups and things like that, we'll go. We'll get a good look at Dean Kramer, who's kind of a fascinating guy because the whole book on him as he came up to the majors or as he was coming through the minors was, man, this guy's curveball, this guy's curveball. And now he has basically abandoned it through two years because it could not stop getting hammered. We'll see. Uh, Last night's game, not a great one. Uh, Blue Jays interim manager, John Schneider, uh, put it pretty bluntly after the game. So 6-5, loss, big rain delay. They lose Zach Pop to the rain delay. Anthony Bass gives them an inning, and then they go Simber giving up one, and then Jimmy Garcia giving up the two-run shot to Rugnet Odor. This is how the Jays manager summed it up after the game. That sucked. Um, I think the rain delay uh, hurt us with a little momentum we had. Wasn't quite sure why they pulled the tarp when they did, to be honest with you. and um, We burned a pitcher because of it, but you know, every loss sucks, and I think right now, um, you know, we just got to score uh, score some more runs, and do that will be just fine. So about that burning a pitcher, it's not the biggest of deals. You should still be able to get through three innings with Bass, Simber, and Garcia without giving up three runs. Those are supposed to be your, your primary bridge guys. Um, losing Zach Pop was at least a statistical anomaly, because he gets credit for an appearance, uh, but didn't throw a pitch. Now, I was trying to find some historical precedent for that. Unfortunately, Zach Pop's appearance is so rare that... So I can go back and I can search pitchers who had appearances that were logged where they threw zero pitches. That's something that's happened 20-some-odd times in baseball history. The way that happens is you come in and... You know, a runner gets picked off or something like that. Or, you know, there's other weird stuff that can happen. Uh, uh, you balk in the winning run or something like that. Uh, there are 24 instances in baseball history of a pitcher getting into a game and throwing zero pitches. Zach Pop is not one of them because technically, Zach Pop threw null pitches yesterday he didn't throw zero pitches uh you get a big old null in there I even called in a favor at baseball reference trying to uh, get some precedent for that 
they couldn't help me out. At least not yet. So Zach Pop, congratulations. You belong in a, a weird tier of guys that throw null pitches in a game. Lots of activity on Twitter today and in the text line. People are, some people are going through it with the Blue Jays. Some people are saying the fan base is overreacting and, uh, you know, I shouldn't even be giving oxygen to some of these concerns. I would say when you've let some of your lead in the wild card race evaporate to the exact teams that are chasing you with more series ahead against Cleveland on the weekend, who's right behind you. And then Baltimore again next week, who are right behind you. I'd say the concerns are worth checking in on. So obviously the job is, I mean, the jobs to be honest, it's more important to be right than to strike any sort of uh, tone or middle ground or, or make listeners happy. Uh, but there are some people like James who is in James, Nate. Oh, you're Nate. I don't know. This guy uses a double name, but he texts in as Nate sometimes. Anyway, he says, uh, you say it's not doom and gloom, but I would have to disagree. Uh, they're going to get carved up by the Guardians, and then they play the Yankees. Uh, they've got the Orioles in between that again uh, because basically the safe bet the rest of the season is just uh, they're always playing the Orioles. That's the way it goes. they got 13 left against them. Um, so Nate thinks it is doom and gloom. Some people in the replies have said it's not doom and gloom. Everyone's overreacting. I want to go through, though, some of the – more earnest responses to where the concern level is with this team right now. I'm not going to get to all of them again. I got a lot of responses, so we'll, we'll hit on a couple of them. The big concern, we'll start with Dr. Internet, who says when the Blue Jays lose, his dad calls and yells at him. Uh, that's a tough one. I'm sorry, buddy. Uh, you can have your dad call into Jays talk instead. Blair and Barker post game with Jays talk. Maybe that's a better outlet for him just don't uh don't have him call in friday and yell at me when i'm on jay's talk please one of the big ones that came in was the health of george springer scotty asks is he really just five days away does the jackie bradley jr edition tell us a little bit more our pal the zoobs says springer by far the whole thing is built around him leading off and playing center field when he plays and contributes the whole thing hums without him they feel less than the sum of their parts Zoobs, I'm with you. The Springer thing, defensively, whatever. You can get past it. If he's not in center field, you're playing a lesser player there. Uh, but if Springer's at DH, especially with how the catchers have hit lately, uh, Kirk may be heating up again now. Danny Jansen with the old uh, sub-200 batting average over the last month. Given how the catchers have hit, maybe you're okay with Springer in the DH slot. But he is a solid center fielder. And that DH spot is supposed to be a rotating day off thing or a way to get Alejandro Kirk's bat in the lineup and Danny Jansen's glove. I'm more concerned on the offensive side, which seems wrong because Springer hasn't had a gangbusters offensive year and this offense overall has been pretty effective. But you see what it looks like since the trade deadline where Springer hasn't been involved and this offense is down, uh, you know, the better part of three quarters of a run a game. Springer in the top spot is not only a very good hitter and don't forget one of historically the most dangerous leadoff hitters in baseball history. 
is Ricky Henderson. And then it's George Springer in a group that includes uh, Kevin Biggio's dad and a couple other guys in that next tier. He is a really tough guy for a starting pitcher to start a game against, whether it's long plate appearances, whether it's the threat of a home run uh, Springer, even in what you'd call probably a down year, still at the top of that order with a 331 OBP, not elite, but enough that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and the power bats behind him are hitting with guys on base relatively often. He was also running more this year than he had since 2015, by the way. He had 10 stolen bases before he hit the I.L. Not only is Springer a good hitter, but he then lets you use Lourdes Gurriel Jr. down in kind of the power alley part of the lineup. Instead of him hitting first, he's been fine there. Fine to solid there. Uh, you have a high contact bat who's getting up with runners in scoring position a lot when you're in the five, six kind of hole that lets you not have to use Whit Merrifield as a leadoff leadoff hitter when Gurriel's not in the lineup because Whit Merrifield is not a good enough hitter to be leading off for you regularly. If a Matt Chapman gets cold, if it's not an Alejandro Kirk day, it gives you way more lineup flexibility and it kind of bumps potential holes in your lineup from seven down to eight, maybe even nine. So yes, I agree, Zubes, uh, and the other people who sent in about Springer, that's a big one. We'll see. He's about five days away from being able to be activated. We haven't got much of an update. Uh, the first day of road series tends to be update day. So maybe, or I guess they're back home on Friday. We'll probably get a, a more substantial update on Friday, I'd imagine. There are a couple responses about this team's record situationally. And by situationally, I mean the fact that they are well, a couple things that their one run record, their their record in one run games has come back down to earth, which we kind of expected all along. We have Rob saying their record versus winning teams is a concern to him. And Michael saying their record on the road is a concern to him. Let's dive into that a little bit more. The Jays are 26 and 29 away from home. I don't think that's a big deal. Most teams are going to, be better at home over the course of the, a season. Tampa Bay, worst record on the road. Baltimore, worst record on the road. Minnesota, basically, Minnesota, Cleveland, both two games under 500 on the road instead of three games under 500 like the Jays are. It's hard to be above 500 on the road, when, especially when you play in the uh, American League East. The Yankees, by the way, the only American League East team with a 500 record or better on the road this year. So I'm not as worried about that one. But the record against teams who are above 500 is 29 and 38. It's nine games below 500. You've got to eat against bad teams. That's true. And that's something the Jays have done a pretty good job of. 31 and 12 against sub 500 teams. But you do wonder a little bit if... That makes it, to use a tech term, hard to scale. What, can it can it blow up in the playoffs? Can it go for seven games against a really good opponent? Again, we can turn to Tampa Bay and Baltimore as examples here, both teams that are under 500 against winning teams. The Chicago White Sox, a disaster against winning teams. You'll also note, by the way, that the Jays have a lot more games played in general against winning teams than some of the other wildcard teams because they play in the American League East. Minnesota and the White Sox and Cleveland don't have to deal with this very much. Uh, even the Mariners, 
under 500 against 500 or better teams. So there is a little bit of noise here because Houston and the Yankees are so much better than everyone else in the American league. But yes, I think that it is a concern. I think it's a scenario where you don't trust more than two of your starters right now, where your bullpen doesn't have the same swing and miss stuff as some of those other really good teams. And while your offense has been one of the best in baseball, there are some indicators that at least certain pitcher types can game plan for them and attack them intelligently, not shut them down. If you're a hitter, the caliber of Vladimir Guerrero jr. You dictate the matchup buddy. Um, but there are ways to come at the Jays. Again, we're going to talk to Ben Clemens of Fangraphs on Friday. He wrote a really good piece about Teoscar Hernandez this season and how he's kind of rounded into form here by altering his approach at the plate. And I wonder if it's something that the Jays as a team are maybe looking at. Uh, let's take a couple more of these items of concern. Kyle is worried that there's no clubhouse dog like the Mariners have. I will offer up my cat for that role. Jay says the players being bad is a concern. And Ricky says the losing is a concern. Yep. Thanks for the thoughtful answers, guys. Um, Lewis is having a recurring dream where Julian Merriweather pitches in a one run game against the Yankees in the playoffs. Uh, Lewis <laughs> don't, uh, don't, I don't know. I don't know if I knew how to fix dreams, I'd be a, a much better rested person, but yeah, I, I hope that that dream subsides for you. Um, a lot of the concerns have to do with the bullpen. This is not surprising. It was the biggest talking point heading into the deadline. The Jays needed more back-end relievers, needed more swing and miss stuff. So we have Nate saying the bullpen's not built to win in October. We have Vector saying compare this bullpen to what the Yankees and Mariners looked like last night. Stubby is upset that they've been dumpster diving for relievers. I don't think that's fair to Anthony Bass, but yeah, you, you've kind of churned through the Sergio Romos of the world a little bit. Gideon's worried that they've been overworked and, and pitched too much in high leverage. Fitz, McGee, and Paul are worried about the lack of swing and miss stuff. All of those are real factors. The Jays' bullpen by ERA and by how many runs the teams allowed in the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings the last month has been really solid. The results are there. What's not there, though, is the swing and miss stuff, which if we're trying to project a bullpen forward because relief pitching is so noisy and so hard to get a grasp on week to week, game to game, the ability to miss bats is an important one for a bullpen. It's probably the most predictive thing we have when it comes to bullpen performance. So the Jays still not having that from their bullpen is of some concern. The Jays have also had some, I don't want to say fortunate batted ball luck because some pitchers do have the ability to suppress home runs, but the Jays bullpen has one of the highest fly ball rates in baseball and they play in a hitter's park and they've not given up a lot of home runs, even if it feels like they have. So I'd wonder if some of that is going to come back down to earth as well. Hillary also asks about Jordan Romano. She says, is Romano actually good? Yes, Romano is good. Is Romano dropping off a little bit or, or tailing off? Certainly. 259 ERA. Blown a couple saves now. We were talking about him early in the year. 
Um, he had the the Jays record for most consecutive saves. He's got four blown ones this year. That's not bad. 25 for 29, still pretty good. When it comes to other ways to evaluate a reliever, he's had 26 shutdowns to six meltdowns, which is Fangraph's way of, um, you know, ditch saves and holds. And, and let's see how a guy actually helped or hurt you win games. A 26 to six ratio is pretty good. It's almost exactly what he had last year. But he's striking out a lot fewer batters. And if you talk about swing and miss stuff in the bullpen, that's a little worrisome. He's also giving up more fly balls. He he had the very lethal combination last year of being a high strikeout guy and a high ground ball rate guy. That's not quite there. Now, if you're looking for room for optimism, he's still getting as much swing and miss stuff in terms of percentage of pitches guys whiff on, uh, just not resulting in strikeouts as often. So is Jordan Romano good? Yes, absolutely. He's good. Is he the best closer in baseball? No, probably not. Is there a scenario where they would have added another arm and Romano ends up being the eighth inning guy or something like that? I don't think so, but it's certainly possible that on merit, that could have been the case. Romano is not my biggest concern. It's more some of these other concerns about Um, Yep, they've been a little overworked. Last night, Jimmy Garcia's fourth appearance in the last six games. And he's been good in high leverage spots for them. But that's a lot of high leverage work over the course of a week. And there just aren't a ton of reinforcements coming this time of year. You can look at Julie Merriweather and Taylor Sacedo looking pretty good on the rehab assignments. But... Do you guys remember what those two looked like when they were playing in the major leagues earlier this year? They're depth options, and that's about it. They're they're options when when the Trent Thorntons of the world go down. They're the next man up, and they're the kind of last guy you call on for a couple games. And the Jays have, you know, there's still 20 days to get through before the rosters expand. So um, I would personally like to see a little bit more of Zach Pop and see what he can do. Not that they haven't been uh, trying to do that. They tried to get him into last night's game. He's solid, though. I'm intrigued by him. When you don't walk absolutely anyone, and every single ball in play is on the ground, I'm interested in how you'll look at Rogers Center. So maybe we get a look at Zach Pop again sometime soon. few more concerns from people. Spencer's a little worried that the top players on this team have almost across the board, had down years. Spencer's an interesting point, and I, you can go one of two directions with this, right? You can go, well, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette, and to a lesser extent, George Springer, haven't been the guys that you expected and the guys they've shown they can be. And maybe that means hot streaks are coming. The other side is, and someone else mentioned this, I apologize, I forget the person's name, but... Uh, maybe 2021 was the high water mark for some of those guys. That was the, you know, 90th percentile outcome and not the 60th percentile outcome. So how much positive regression can you bank on? If it's Vlad and Bo, they're young enough and established enough that I think better days are ahead. Vlad and Bo are both kind of in that right now. We're starting to see it. I don't know if that holds for every single player on the roster. Uh, Glenn Allen chills way of summing this up might be, I I think it's the best summation of the overall 
feeling when I went through these 250, 300 replies on Twitter. Uh, He said, sometimes things look better on paper than they are. It's a bit of a weird one because last year the Jays felt like they were a really, really good team. They had this expected win-loss record of 99. It felt like when they missed the playoffs, it was by a hair and it just, you know, it was almost unjust and better days were ahead. This year it's felt like the team isn't nearly as good. Things aren't going nearly as well, and yet the team is better and in a playoff spot. So weird things happen, I guess, um, and expectations have a role there. So to Glenn Allen Chill, yeah, I, I think that there's something to that, that sometimes what you build looks and feels like it's going to be a certain thing, and it just doesn't deliver. There are lots of teams over the history of baseball that have fallen victim to that, or on the other side, overperformed. The Jays are playing against one right now. Having said all that, I still think this is a good team. 10 games over 500 in the top wildcard spot. They're going to be fine-ish, big picture. But these concerns that you've all expressed, and I'm going to pocket some of these for tomorrow or for uh, later in the show, but there are more. One last one from Jamie. With more Looney Dogs being consumed each week on Looney Dog Tuesdays at Rogers Center, is there a breaking point at which the entire Looney Dogs promotion will become untenable? To that, Jamie, I say, how can that be profitable for Schneiders? If you know your game night movie references, uh, how could that be profitable for Frito-Lay? I hear you, man. It's got to be worrisome. Let's take a break. Speaking of profitable, Kylie McDaniel of ESPN, when he's ranking farm systems, does so trying to put kind of a future value on things. It's an interesting approach. He had the Blue Jays rising in his farm system rankings in his latest update at ESPN. Let's take a break. When we come back, Kylie McDaniel on the Blue Jays on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Everything you need to know about the Blue Jays, Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. That's a song from a band, a local band called Losers that I was saving until uh, the Jays felt like they deserved a song from a band called Losers. Losers of two in a row against the Orioles. Uh, Big picture, things might not be so bad. To help us take a look at it, the author of Future Value, one of my favorite books and baseball writer at ESPN, it's Kylie McDaniel. How are you, man? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I got to start you off with this. You are on a Canadian show, and I, like someone you're familiar with, graduated from one of Canada's best business schools with really good grades. Kylie, are you caught up on the rehearsal yet? (laughs) Yes, I am. Has your brain recovered uh... from that last episode? (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, so... Uh, I had watched Nathan for you. My wife was not familiar with it. And I was like, I want to watch the show. I watched it while she was out of town. I'm like, I think you'll like it. And she watched it. And I realized the second time watching those first three episodes, 
I was just doing like awkward laughing in almost every scene, knowing what was going to happen. And she's just like, why do you sound like a madman watching the show? And then I was like, all right, now that you've seen all three, do you want to watch it? She's like, I have to see what happens with this lady that's trying to figure out what it's like to be a parent. And then she watched episode four and she was like, I have to tell my friends to watch this so I'm not alone anymore. Yeah, I have an entire group chat with a bunch of New York-based baseball and basketball writers about it at this point. It's uh, it's a lot, man. It's uh, this is this is either Canada's greatest export or something that's going to put Canada on like the world enemies list. Uh, Nathan Fielder doing, but, but I this. think the definition of something being good is that it gets a reaction out of everybody, and I can't imagine someone watching the show and just being like, "eh, forgettable." <laughs> like, yeah, like I, it's going to stick with you for a while. Oh, absolutely. I had a friend suggest that like the season finale is like you're going to turn around and Nathan's watching you watch the show in your living room somehow. <laughs> or the guy that plays Nathan is behind you watching you watch the show preparing yes, for him. Exactly. Um, all right. I, I have no good way to segue out of that. Um, just wanted to, to talk rehearsal for a little bit. Um, so over at ESPN, you did your latest farm system rankings. You had the Blue Jays bumped from 21 to 19 in part because you are fond of their draft. Uh, what did you like about their draft? And hey, we saw Josh Kasevich debut last night with three hits in Dunedin. Uh, reason for excitement there? Yeah, I, I think he is. He, he's in that sort of second tier. Him and uh, Kate Doty at LSU are both, for me, uh, some defensive value. They're going to stick in the infield somewhere. Uh, both can hit and both don't come with a ton of raw power. But those kinds of guys are the ones that, especially in the second, third round, can sneak their way to the big leagues and be useful, you know, low-end everyday players or really good utility guys. And once you get to, like, pick 50 or 60 in the draft, there's not 50 or 60 decent big leaguers. So if you can get that guy after those top 50 picks, you take him. And I don't think the Blue Jays are scared of doing that. Um, I would say the, the sort of top two guys in the class for me was the first pick, Brandon Barriera, who I think has pretty much all the components you would look for um, and a lefty having a chance to be like a Robbie Ray type potential frontline lefty, four pitches lefty in the mid nineties, all of them flash plus good athlete. Um, and I would say one of the, you know, one of the main negatives you'd point out is it's a little more stuff over command, but the command that all the components are there. And I think a traditional thing, a lot of scouts had been looking for for a while is, Oh, well that ace has to be six, three, two and barrier is like five eleven, maybe six foot. And I think now people are fine with the, with the shorter pitchers, because it means a shorter arm action, which is easier to repeat, which gives you a better chance for that command. And then Tucker Tillman, I still haven't gotten a full explanation. It sounds like he really wanted to play for the Blue Jays. It does That's sound how he like got that. that. Yeah. Yeah, how he got that far in the draft. I had him rated one spot ahead of Barriera, and I think he went like 70 picks behind him. It was for an overslot bonus, but somebody should have taken him by then, unless he sort of floated his way down there to get with Toronto. But I thought he was a mid-first-round talent. That's uh that's always great to hear, and you see some of these some of the guys who who then went under slot in in order to be able to do the Toman thing, and I was curious as to I, I know you kind of mentioned it there that the Jays haven't been afraid of guys like Kazevich and Doty who or Jordan Groshans and Austin Martin before them. I know Austin Martin the the ceiling was supposed to be higher, but these kind of projectable infield guys with a hit tool. Do you see anything with it where like like does it raise anything to in your mind that they've flipped these guys pretty quickly the last couple of years? And Gunnar Hogland as well. Yeah, yes. no, I think yeah. the I think they're taking a holistic view of in the draft, let's draft guys that we think will be good long term, that we think can play for our big league team, and will probably maintain their trade value in the short term as well. Like, the, as as cynical as it may sound, that we're going to draft a guy and immediately be thinking about how how valuable he'll be in a trade. 
that is also how you should think about it because you want to have the optionality of if we if we're making a run next year we can't just take like a high school righty that then gets tommy john and you can't really trade them like you have to realize that you're you're taking a long-term asset and you may need them for a short-term thing. And so being able to take a mix of players and realizing that that sort of hit first uh, college guy, if they immediately go to like low A, high A and are hitting immediately, all 30 teams want that guy. Cause everybody wants a surefire big leaguer in return for a trade. They don't necessarily want to headline a trade with a very risky upside guy that hasn't done anything yet. So getting these sort of upside guys early. And then, as I was saying, once you get to picks like 50 to 80, you have sort of the leftover guys that could be everyday players you want to scoop those guys up. And then once you get past that, like top 75, 80 picks, then start taking wild swings on guys or college guys with one tool or, you know, projection high school guys. Like then you can kind of take whatever you want because nobody's supposed to be good at that point. <laughs> but I think they're, they're taking a smart approach to taking both a short and long-term view. So in your book, future value, you, you kind of talk a lot about how, you know, how a player or, or how an organization tries to build this, sustainability this sustainable winner and the jays are in the process of trying to do that now and this front office would tell you that it's not about you know win now it's about win for the next 10 years when you have done things like your farm system rankings and i know you're more than just a prospects guy um but how hard is it for a team in the position the blue jays are where they're good now and they're young but they're a middle of the pack borderline lower third farm system to continue to win now and fortify that main roster. Like, you know, Gabriel Moreno is, is going to graduate from that prospect side at some point, or you have to cash in a prospect chip for uh, the next trade piece. How hard is it to maintain being even a decent system over an extended winning window? Well, I think that's the reason AJ Preller is a GM right now and got to become a GM in the first place is if you look at like Texas's drafts and international halls, when he was there, uh, they were really good. When he left, they sort of magically became average to a little bit below and the team's fortunes have sort of sunk with that because as you're saying, like you have to be able to have that pipeline coming. Like I think Atlanta is a good example where because of some of the sanctions and change of GM and all that kind of thing, they had not a lot going on at the rookie ball and low A levels because they just weren't able to sign those players. And so they then, you know, drafted Michael Harris, uh, Spencer Strider, Bryce Elder, like a lot of guys that just immediately got to the big leagues or Shay Langoliers was in a big trade for Matt Olson. They're immediately getting value from those picks. And so may, their farm system is now 30th, but that's the kind of 30th you want, which is the same way Washington was. It's like Harper, Strasburg, Victor Robles, Juan Soto, they didn't hang in the minors very long. So you don't get a big farm ranking out of them. But you'd rather have the good big leaguer than the good farm ranking. And so the farm ranking is good, but in reality, what you really need is enough of the trade ammunition to make whatever trade you think is essential at that time, which I think the Blue Jays do. I mean, they've got two guys in the top 25 in all of baseball, and Aralvis Martinez and Gabriel Moreno. They've got a pitcher in the middle of the top 100 in Ricky Tiedemann. And then they've got what I just mentioned, those two top guys from the draft this year in addition to Leo Jimenez, who I think is also in that tier. So they kind of have just enough to make a big trade if they want to. Like They could have packaged all those guys and gotten Juan Soto if they wanted to, which is like enough to be dangerous. But you'd also rather have a good big league team that is competing than have a good farm system. So they're like striking that balance where you have just enough at every level. 
you've got lower minors and upper minors. You've got guys that are graduating, guys that are coming in, international and the domestic amateur. You kind of need all that stuff because you never know where that weakness is that then all of a sudden you're ready to make that move and you don't have enough pieces to make that move and now you fall behind and now the whole thing kind of falls apart because you kind of push too many chips in the middle one time early on and then you sort of you know can't pull it off at the end. Right. And and that's, you know, that's a, a hard part sometimes, I think, because, you know, it's it's very easy to be like, well, go all in, go all in, go, go get Juan Soto. Don't get me wrong. I wanted Juan Soto. I would have loved to brought you on to talk about Juan Soto. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, when you're taking the kind of long term competitive view, the way you just laid it out is necessary. Uh, so let's talk about a couple of those names. Gabriel Moreno, in some places, has gotten as high as number one in prospect rankings. He He came up to the Blue Jays a little earlier and hit well early on and then kind of cooled off and he hasn't hit super well since he's gone back down to Buffalo. Um, Where do you have him while he's still prospect eligible? And do you see a scenario where he's back up helping the big league club this season? Yeah, I've been a little on the low end relative to some of the public rankings for him, but that's also like, you know, one, two, five is where other people have him and like six through 10 is kind of where I have him. So not like wildly lower. Um, and I think there's some guys that, um, you know, would be compared to him, like say going into the year, Tyler Soderstrom with Oakland look kind of similar, but may not be a catcher. Moreno, a, a level or two ahead will be a catcher. And so all of a sudden the pressure on the bat isn't anywhere near as much. The sort of concern with Moreno entering the year was how much of that raw power will show up in the game. He'll show it to you in flashes for, you know, a month at a time, but hadn't consistently done it. But that also is typically the last thing to come for players anyway. You'd rather have a late-coming power than be a guy swinging out of his shoes when he's 17 and just hope that that's going to work as they get older. So that was sort of the limitation. And then also, if someone's catching every day, they, they just like mathematically are not going to hit their uh, their offensive potential because of all the rigors of catching. And so that's why I think Toronto having a number of passable catchers probably helps um, to to spread out that, that sort of offensive negative that comes with sticking behind the plate every day. I think Moreno is now in that tricky area where like CJ Abrams was obviously was part of the Soto deal where if he comes up and doesn't immediately hit and immediately make that impact, you then are like, all right, let's send him back down to triple a, let him get his feet under him. But then he's just coming up and getting sit down after a week or two. Can he really get comfortable? Is he then pressing and playing differently? Like you're in that weird spot where you want to work him in, but you're on a good team in the same way San Diego is. So you want him to play, but if he's not doing what you need, you have a veteran that can do something like it. And then you've got to figure out like how to negotiate this where there's, basically not that 4A level that you wish existed somewhere between the two or that he could improve while playing part-time in the big leagues or moving around. Like there's just, there's just the, the demands of being a, a good big league player and going from triple A prospect to big leaguer. It's tougher than people think it is because you just remember the Tatises and Acunas. There's a lot of guys that just kind of bounce around for a year or two trying to figure that out. And he may come out of that quickly, but that's sort of the area he's in right now. Right. And you say, you know, we don't have a, a quad A and it, it's just unfortunate that the Jays can't just like, you know, loan Gabriel Moreno to Oakland until they're ready, ready to call him up uh, like they've done with, you know, Matt Chapman and Josh Donaldson and a bunch of other guys. It's what they do in soccer. Yeah. We'd be like, hey, for six months, you can have this guy at the end. We know we're going to want him and we'd love to be able to call him up the moment he's ready. Yeah. But unfortunately, he's play for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, You mentioned, you know, the, the two kind of different hitter paths of Moreno has the hit tool and maybe the power will come later and you said versus a 17 year old who just has tons of power but no approach uh, I'll use that as a pivot point to talk about Aurelvis Martinez uh, the Jays have two very 
underage guys at double a right now in Aralvis Martinez, who's 20 years old is threatening the new Hampshire Fisher cats franchise record for home runs, uh, but has a sub 300 OBP and then 19 year old Ricky Tiedemann who just got there more philosophically or like macro than, than specific to these two guys. What adjustments do we have to make when we're scouting a guy that young already at the double a level? Well, so the first thing, and this, this happens every off season where I'll send around like a top 100 and somebody will point out like, Oh, this guy like finished the year as a 20 year old in double a, I want to say Jordan Walker was like that where he just demolished low a got sent to high a last year and the numbers weren't quite as good. And then when you send the list around, they're like, Oh, and just ignore the high a thing where he wasn't quite as good at the end of the year. Imagine if he stayed at low a and just didn't get promoted and demolished it while young for the league, just rank him based on that, ignore the other thing. And so with Martinez, you kind of have to do that too, where the, you know, sub 300 OBP it's like, okay, well, he's supposed to be like getting ready for his junior year of college if he was <laughs> domestic right now. And he's like in double A with 25 home runs. And like, if you, if you look at, if you just sort of ignore the, the BABIP, the strikeout and walks and just ignore all that stuff and look at his isolated power, it's been 270 to 290 at every level his oh. entire pro career, which is like among the best you'll see in the big leagues. And he's been young for every level. So to have, I, I think that also, that number explains what kind of player he is, which is um, if you see, you know, for example, look at like Bryson DeChambeau in golf and you're like, oh, well, anybody can swing as hard as they can. But it's like, yeah, but it takes an incredible athlete to swing as hard as they can and know where it's going. And he has been able to be the guy with the crazy bat speed um, that at every level is getting to it with raw power, is lifting the ball, is swinging at the right pitches well enough to get enough walks and strikeouts to get good enough pitches to then drive. Like he is the rare athlete that has the sort of big picture NFL athleticism, but more specifically the baseball athleticism of like the wrist to the elbows, the explosion, the pitch selection, some of those soft skills that oftentimes when you pick a player out of the Dominican that has the best raw power at age 15, they'll be missing all of those things. They just hit the ball a mile. It's like a long drive guy as opposed to like a complete golfer. Um, he has that rare ability to both wow you in batting practice as a 15-year-old and then five years later be in double-A and still be getting to all that power. And you're just sort of wondering, like, well, is he going to be that guy like Lewis Brinson that, like, can do it in triple-A because he's just so much more gifted than everyone else and then gets to the big leagues and has some trouble because, like, that gap is a little too much for what he's doing? Or do we need him to sort of adapt to what he's doing right now, figure out a big league sustainable version of it? Or is he just so physically talented he will just for the rest of his career be like Starling Marte and run like a 6% walk rate and just kind of do whatever he wants? And he never quite gets to like that Hall of Fame level, but he's like a really good player for a really long time. That's kind of the question and the, the outcome where you get to just continue doing the same thing your whole career and you're just teetering on the edge of swinging too much. It's like a handful, like single digit guys that can actually do that. Um, and I think the best ones of them do a version of what uh, Ronald Acuna did when he came up, which is swung a little too much, numbers went in the tank for like a month, and then he made an adjustment and just took off with the rest of his career. I think that's what you're hoping happens, is that it's one little adjustment, it has to happen in the big leagues, and he figures it out quickly. That's like the best-case scenario. Okay, so that's a pretty good best-case scenario still. Um, and Aurelis Martinez, Ricky Tiedemann being at A. At these ages, I mean, with Tiedemann, it's just he's he's earned it over the course of the year. Relvis seemed maybe a little aggressive at the time, um, but I'm curious, and this is a, a baseball-wide question. It was one of the kind of developmental philosophicals I, I wanted to have you on and talk about. With the limited number of minor league teams this year and minor league leagues around baseball, have we seen at a larger level teams, you know, say pushing a guy to double A because 
if you're not in double A, you're you're blocking the next guy up from high A. Like I saw the Jays, you know, uh, wave a handful of minor league guys this week that you'd probably love a little bit more runway with, but because you can only have the six affiliates now, uh, you're at a space. Have we seen that affect the promotion schedule or how teams have, have approached their minor leagues? Yes, you're zeroing in on something. There's also one other element, which is some of the uh, different um, rules at various levels. Like there's the automatic strike zone in some levels and um, some, some some of the different like sort of trying out different rules uh, that I think have affected some of these leagues where the walk rates will spike. But what you're talking about is, is what's happening, which is there used to be a level between rookie ball and low A where you could take your sort of older but haven't quite proven it uh, college guys or your junior college guys that have been in the system a couple of years or maybe your fringe prospects you'd like to hang on to for another year or two, let them go there as like an on-ramp to low A. Now those guys are all getting released and you're taking the 18-year-old from that team with all the upside and putting them in low A. So the, the like competitive levels at each, at each level of the minors are going down a bit because those tools, the upside guys that you cannot release are getting moved up a level and those experienced 22, 23-year-old college guys that maybe one out of 10 of them make the big leagues, those guys are getting released. And so the like level of competition is going down some. You're also getting some of those wacky rules in some of these leagues. And so some of the numbers seem to be inflated a bit, whether it's a walk rate because the, you know, the umpires aren't making the balls and strike calls or because there's a couple more guys that are, you know, 18-year-olds throwing 95 in low A that wouldn't normally be there but don't know where the ball's going. <laughs> so those experienced college hitters can grab a couple extra walks here and there. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I guess, you know, that's something teams for certain, but but we will have to try to adjust for as well, like with the the ball in AAA this year or whatever's been going on there. Uh, one more for you, Kylie, before we let you go here. Uh, you look at where the Blue Jays are right now. Uh, they're at the top of the AL wild card, but it looks at least a little precarious. Could you see anyone in this system, whether it's a Zulueta, Yinger, Moreno, whoever it is, making a contribution in a meaningful way between now and whenever the playoffs start? Yes, in terms of being on the team and and making a contribution. Being a difference maker, I don't think I'd necessarily go that far. Um, I don't think there is a guy that has not been on the big league team yet that's going to come up and, and the fans are just going to be like, oh, this, this is right. the guy, this is the answer. He's going to fill a real role for us. I don't think that like impact guy is there. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, it's the, if that impact guy was there, he'd be up already, right? Like we're kind of at that time of the season. Yeah, I think it's more likely that the Gabriel Moreno, like somebody from that group that's sort of been up and down or been hanging around or waiting for their chance, that they come up and all of a sudden it all clicks. I think it's more likely that one of those like more well-known guys comes up and does it. Or even just like Ricky Tiedemann comes up and throws an inning at a time. I don't think they'll do that. But, you know, that sort of thing is on the table where you take a really talented guy, put him in a lower role than he would normally be asked to do. I think, you know, to keep their head above water. You can't tease me with the idea of Ricky Tiedemann coming up and throwing one inning at a time. You know, oh, he's throwing enough innings in the minors. We have no left-handed relievers in the bullpen right now. Uh, you can't tease me with that, man. I uh, Also, like a, low, a lower slack eye, three pitches, unique shape to the breaking ball. You can see someone looking at the bullpen and saying, like, oh, we'd love to have a guy with this sort of shape uh, to bring a different arm slot. And, that you know, competitively, we like to have this kind of guy. Well, we could go take some like leftover 4A guy and see if we can get him to work while somebody else has it. Or we could bring this guy up and just put him on the 40-man a year earlier because like, he might be in the big leagues next year anyway. Um, you know, those are the kinds of things that sometimes can happen late in the year if you don't have exactly who you want and you want a shot in the arm see if maybe this will work. <sighs> Man, that's, uh, that's something to think on for sure. Uh, one last one for you. 
Nathan Fielder's from the West Coast here in Canada. Sometimes that splits allegiances between the Blue Jays and, and a West Coast team. What do you think the odds are he's a Jays fan versus a Mariners fan versus has no idea? I will say he has a pretty big Mariners fan energy. Okay. All right. There you go. That's good to know. <laughs> he just right. seems like a sad Northwestern, keeps to himself, introvert. Like uh, the comedy doesn't come with any sort of sales pitch. It's like a punchline that hits you 30 seconds later. Like to me, that that feels like Pacific Northwest more than it feels like Toronto. But I mean, I'm open to your interpretation. And maybe they can play for it in the first round of the the wild card. My my real goal here is I, I would love for Nathan to come on and explain to me his own fandom as well. Um, we'll see what he thinks about some of those uh, Jays prospects in Vancouver as well. I know he's a Victoria guy, but close enough. Uh, Kylie McDaniel, I'll stop wasting your time with uh, Nathan for you talk. Thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Yep, thanks for having me. Kylie McDaniel of ESPN, author of Future Value, uh, one of the absolute best books you could grab if you're interested in um, player development and organizational structuring in baseball. Uh, I I took a lot out of that book for not just baseball, for for basketball, for hockey. Um, It's just a very good kind of business of sports and, and player development book in general. So check that out. Check Kylie's, uh, Farm system rankings over at ESPN and all his great work there. We're going to take a break in a minute here. We're going to get to know, not via him, the newest Blue Jay, but uh, we've got Jen McCaffrey on the other side. She covers the Red Sox for the Athletic. I want to hear her take on what Jackie Bradley Jr.'s got in the tank. The Detroit Tigers, by the way, I had a joke ready to go in my uh, while Kylie was talking about how the Braves are the kind of 30th in the farm system rankings that you want to be because it's you've graduated guys to the majors and you've gotten them there quickly. And I wanted to say, unlike the Tigers, who are really bad and also really low in most farm system rankings, well, the Tigers just let their general manager, Al Avila, go. So wish I had gotten that joke in. How timely that would have been. I will take a break, a wash in regret at a missed opportunity. When we come back, we'll talk to Jen McCaffrey of the athletic about Jackie Bradley jr. That addition for the blue Jays and what he could bring down the stretch. We'll also take a look at the lineups for tonight's Jays Orioles game, the pitching matchup, Jose Barrios against Dean Kramer. Uh, all that's next on Jays talk plus on sports at five ninety. the fan. The smartest takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. We're with you for one more segment before we kick it over to fan drive time. And then Ben Wagner with the call for you. First pitch, 7.05 as the Jays try to salvage one of three against the Orioles before they play them infinity more times down the stretch. The Jays made a post-trade deadline addition this week with no post-trade deadline waiver trades. Those additions are never going to be too big, but this one's interesting. It's someone that Jays fans are quite familiar with. 
having played in the same division as him for the better part of a decade, it's Jackie Bradley Jr. To help us take a look at what Jackie Bradley Jr. might still have to contribute. It's Jen McCaffrey of The Athletic, my former teammate. Jen, how are you? Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. Um, before we get into the Jackie Bradley Jr. stuff, uh, Dennis Eckersley retiring. I, I don't get to check every Red Sox game, but that's kind of a that's kind of a bummer as a baseball fan. How do you feel about uh, Eckersley transitioning into Grandpa Eck, as he said? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely uh, disappointing. I think for a lot of people here, obviously exciting for him and for his family, but uh, you know he uh, he is a staple on the broadcast. He's been, you know, working for Nesson, um, you know, which airs the Red Sox games for, for the last 20 years since he retired. And um, yeah, he's just a, an awesome guy, obviously. Um, so wealth of knowledge he brings to just watching the game and, you know, being a, a, a viewer and, and even, you know, learning from him as a reporter. Uh, he's uh, he's tremendous. So um, happy for him to be able to spend more time with his, his grandkids out in California, but obviously a huge loss. Uh, for yeah, anybody watching the team and, and kind of anybody in baseball because he would do you know national games here and there too for for TBS and whatnot. So um, so yeah, pretty uh, kind of bittersweet, I guess uh, is the best way to put it. Have him for a couple more months here before uh, before he signs off. And uh, what a, what a team they're they're giving him for the stretch run here. Chris Sale breaks his wrist on his bike. Uh, is there any better snapshot of the Red Sox season than than that kind of happening to Chris Sale at this stage? Yeah, no, for sure. It's it's a disaster. Um, everything's a mess here, and I think it's kind of uh, it's it's been going downhill for a long time, and, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty rough. So I think they're just trying to ride out the the rest of these games. Uh, obviously, there's still plenty of season left, um, so it's going to be hard uh, to endure a lot of these these games for people here that follow this team. But uh, it is what it is, and they didn't do much at the deadline, and so I think that that kind of um, just showed that they don't really think the there's much, much here. So the Red Sox have been pretty up and down the last decade or so, and they've sprinkled in seasons like this with very competitive seasons. So I would imagine if you're a Red Sox fan, you can look ahead and assume better days are coming. Is there any sort of concern, though, that the long-term futures of Xander Bogarts and later down the line, Raphael Devers could be in question if things don't turn around there quickly? Yeah, definitely. I think people are very worried um, that both of them are going to be gone um, and, you know, sign with other teams. Obviously, Bloom traded, you know, Mookie Betts, so I think anybody's, you know, on the table. And I think a lot of people are worried that he's going to do the same thing with Devers. So, yeah, I would say it's a pretty – most fans are pretty frustrated and negative about the team right now and just the direction of the future and not sure when it's going to be – when they're going to turn things around. Obviously, last year they – played well and, and got deep kind of with a, a roster they weren't necessarily expecting to do much with. Um, and, you know, so I guess you can never say never. Um, but, yeah, I think the general consensus around here uh, is just that um, this isn't going to be a competitive team for a long time. So that was going to be the case with or without Jackie Bradley Jr., whose who's better days are probably behind him. The, the Red Sox designate him for assignment, and he's now landed with the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, I know Jackie is a super well-liked guy, uh, but when it comes to on the field, is there any reason to expect that, that Bradley has some good days ahead still? Yeah, I mean, I am assuming they'll use him mostly, you know, as a defensive replacement and kind of um, uh, what he brings to the table defensively is, you know, I would say second to none in the, in the majors. He's one of the best 
one of the best, you know, defensive outfielders you're going to find. So being able to add him um, for the stretch runs for, for the, for the Jays is I think a, a huge asset in that sense. Um, yeah. He struggled with the bat. That's kind of been his entire career. He played really well at home and not on the road this year. Um, so I don't know what that is going to mean for, you know, uh, how he's going to, how he's going to fare in Toronto. Uh, but, you know, I, I can't sit here and, and sit here and say that he's going to, you know, uh, be a great contributor, contributor offensively. But, um, but I think, you know, the reason that they got him is all for the glove and, and he should be able to kind of help out the pitching staff, shore up the defense, um, you know, in the outfield and make them that much better. And, uh, and that he should, you know, should be able to, make some some key plays for them um uh, you know uh over the next couple months obviously reputationally and over the last you know decade very few center fielders i've watched as good as jackie bradley jr uh he played primarily in right this year is he still as effective in center field uh, or was that like what what was the reasoning there just just getting other guys opportunities in center because i do think at least while george springer's out the jays are going to try him in center field a little bit yeah, no, he's he's definitely capable, uh, more than capable, a, a great center fielder. It was more about, especially at Fenway. Uh, Fen, Fenway's right field is, you know, trickier than center field, obviously with the dimensions here. So that was the main reason he played a lot of right, mostly at home. And then, you know, Kike Hernandez, um, before he went on the IL back in June, was their main center fielder and obviously was uh, kind of um, good at, at being in that spot. So it was more about the, the personnel around him, I think. Jackie, he's pretty versatile and, um, you know, could could play in any position, but the other guys they had, you know, Jaron Duran was a rookie that they kind of put put out in center because they didn't want him in right um, with the the weird angles here. <laughs> um, so yeah, Jackie Jackie's going to be Jackie just would be just fine in, in center field. Uh, you know, kind of and for any other team, I think it was just a matter of who they had here that were uh, in Boston that they were kind of trying to work around. On the non you know, fielding, non-hitting side, just in the clubhouse. Um, Jackie Bradley Jr. does seem to be very well-liked. He's obviously gone through a number of playoff runs and won World Series with the Red Sox. Uh, what can we expect from that side of things from Jackie? Yeah, he was ALCS MVP. Um, you know, he was he was great that year for them. And, you know, obviously um, played, a, played a key role in that uh, championship for them in 18. So, um, so yeah, I mean, he's a, a great clubhouse guy. Um, you know, he's not going to be the type of guy that's, you know, standing on the, you know, uh, the pulpit and, and, you know, screaming out to everybody with rah-rah speeches, but I think he's one of those quiet leaders and kind of goes about his business and does, uh, you know, does his work the right way. And I think that's a kind of a, a guy that you like to have around, you know, in the clubhouse and, um, and, and should be, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm assuming he knows the Jays players pretty well, just having, been around them for so long and so i'm assuming he'll he'll fit right in there and and uh and be able to kind of you know um yeah be a, be a good presence in that clubhouse and, and help those guys out a lot um for whatever sort of whatever they need from him i know they're already a pretty close clubhouse but um i'm sure i'm sure he'll be a good addition to it last one for you jen before i let you go uh, the jays bullpen a little thin how is jackie bradley jr's slider coming along yeah, yeah, that one that one game that he uh, yeah uh, was on the mound here. He uh, he looked like he uh, could get it done better than any of the uh, the uh, Red Sox relievers that day. So uh, so maybe he'll be able to. I, I don't know if you guys necessarily want to want to be rooting for him to be on the mound, but you know if they need someone, I guess he could get in there. Uh, well, thanks so much, Jen. Uh, really appreciate it. Keep up all the great work at the Athletic, and uh, hope the team gives you better things to write about soon. All right, sounds good. Thanks for having me. 
Jed McCaffrey of The Athletic, little insight on Jackie Bradley Jr., the newest Toronto Blue Jay, gets in the game a little bit last night. Nothing major, but that's probably what we're going to see from him moving forward. He is not in the starting lineup tonight. This is your Toronto Blue Jays starting lineup. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. in the leadoff spot. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Alejandro Kirk at DH. Teoscar Hernandez. Bo Bichette. Matt Chapman. Rymel Tapia hitting seventh and playing center field. Danny Jansen behind the plate. Hitting eighth. And Santiago Espinal rounding it out, playing second base. So your bench then is Biggio. Merrifield. Jackie Bradley Jr. And Bradley Zimmer. A lot of Brads. It's an interesting lineup. Uh, that's the lineup that'll go up against Dean Kramer of the Orioles. You've seen him, but not particularly recently. 26-year-old righty. Uh, he was a top 10 prospect in the Orioles system heading into last year and then had just a disaster of a debut season. He's bounced back this year. 343 ERA. Peripherals suggest around an ERA of four. Doesn't strike a ton of guys out at just 17.8%, uh, but he also doesn't walk very many guys. He's got a good chase rate, not a huge whiff rate. So what you're looking at with a, a high chase rate, a high chase rate rather, and a lower whiff rate is very similar to Jose Brios actually, which is guys will swing at stuff outside of the zone in part because you work close to the edges and it's a little harder to, to judge those borderline pitches, but also because they can put a bat on it. If they chase outside the zone, they're not going to swing and miss a ton. That's still good. Getting a guy to swing and stuff outside the zone, generally your contact's going to be worse. But it doesn't miss bats at the level uh, a high-end starter might be looking for. Uh, the stat cast data also doesn't believe that Kramer has this kind of home run suppression ability that he's shown. He allows a monster fly ball rate. And uh, basically the numbers say those are going to leave the park sooner or later. Here's what you're looking at for Kramer from a repertoire perspective. His fastball comes in around 93. He'll throw it about 44% of the time. It has a pretty decent swing and miss rate as far as four-seam fastballs go and a lower contact rate. Um, it's one of those kind of high spin up in the zone fastballs. He does, he does lose the location on it for stretches, and he'll catch too much meat of the plate. Um, but it does kind of look like one of those rising fastballs which can make, can make it a little tougher on uh, on hitters than 93 miles an hour might sound. He complements that with an 87-mile-an-hour cutter, throws that about 31% of the time. Uh, he locates that extremely well. It's one of the most consistently located pitches I've ever seen when you look at the heat zones uh, over a long, a large sample. Guys can hit it for average, but it's a hard pitch to drive with that cutting action, with that location right on the edge of the strike zone. Uh, so that's one, you know, maybe you can poke it into the outfield for a single, but it's hard to square up and hit for extra bases. He'll throw a change up to lefties. It's been hit pretty hard this year. Some of the data suggests he's been a little unlucky, but when you get it hit that often, Hard to know how much uh, how much of a boost you give to Kramer for that. And then there's the curveball, which I mentioned this earlier in the show. On the way up, the curveball was the pitch for Kramer. And then last year, it wasn't very good. This year, he's not abandoned it, but he only throws it about 10% of the time. 
It does have his best whiff rate of any pitch. 32% of swings at that curveball miss. But boy, are the numbers bad if you don't swing and miss. Uh, he That curveball gets rocked when guys can make contact with it. And a big part of that is he tends to locate it middle-middle. That's uh, right down the chute curveball. I'm sure he's not intending to do that. I'm sure there's some... Well, if it looks like it's going to be that rising fastball and then it drops into the zone and it's tricky that way. But too much of the plate and really, really hit hard when it does drop in the zone like that. So how have the Jays fared against Kramer? They saw him three times last year, twice in June, once late in the season. Three starts, he only lasted a total of 10 in a third innings. Gave up 13 earned runs. Not great. Uh, the Jays haven't faced this improved version of him yet. They haven't seen him this year. But based on last year's sample, you've got 33 plate appearances with a monstrous 577 expected weighted on base average, which is the stack cast metric that looks at strikeouts, walks, and quality of content. Contact. Oh, I hope StatCast doesn't have a metric for quality of content. Be in trouble. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. both homered twice off of Kramer last year. Danny Jansen homered off of him as well. The only Jays you're looking at that have even remotely bad small samples are Whit Merrifield and Bradley Zimmer, who are not in the starting lineup. If that sounds like a day where the Jays should get some offense in, I, yep. But uh, also, how many times has that happened with uh, middle-of-the-road pitchers of late? We'll see how it goes. But in general, Dean Kramer is the type of pitcher the Jays should have some fortune against, and as recently as last year did. Jose Brios takes the hill for the Jays. It's hard to know what to expect from him right now. He's got that 519 ERA. The discussion between him and Kikuchi has been a bit of an odd one at times this year because they've been equally bad in the macro, but in very different ways, where Kikuchi just never seems to find it for more than a start at a time, whereas Brios has had these three and four and even five-game stretches where he doesn't look like an ace, but he, like we're coming off a six-game stretch where he allowed three earned runs or fewer. And then he gets blown up again. 13 of his 22 starts have been league average or better in terms of game score. But when you have a 519 ERA, that means that your other nine starts have been probably pretty bad. He's also, with the exception of the opener, had most of his struggles on the road. Now, I've gotten asked about this one a few times. Whether it's something that you put a lot of stock into. Here's where I'm at on it. I would need to be convinced that there's a reason he's worse on the road beyond just comfort because he's not a guy who's had extreme splits like that in the past. Um, he obviously had a really bad start at Rogers center and then figured it out from there. He's had the occasional good start on the road and he hasn't pitched his whole career in Rogers center. He was very, very good in Minnesota for a very long time. So, and, and was just bad in Minnesota, a place that he was very familiar with. I would need a better explanation as to why those splits are happening to 
have any conviction that they're going to sustain. You know the deal with Brios at this point, by the way. Uh, very good walk rate, very good chase rate. That chase rate not leading to a ton of whiffs, though, similar to what we just talked about with Dean Kramer. The curveball is now his number one pitch. He's throwing it at the highest volume at 32%. About a third of the time, if someone swings at it, they're swinging and missing. And if you do make contact, you've only got a 158 batting average against it. So that's been by far his best pitch. He's thrown it more and more in part because the fastball hasn't been there. Drew Fair Service mentioned it a little earlier. The fastball command has abandoned him at times. He's had to minimize the fastball usage a little bit. We've actually seen because the fastball usage, because the fastball has been so ineffective, 367 average against and a monster 640 slugging against since July 1st, he's actually thrown his sinker more than his fastball. So his fastball has fallen to his number three pitch since the start of July. That sinker, by the way, allows a high contact rate still, but not quite the damage his four seamer allows. And then there's also the changeup he'll use against lefties. He's used it more and more of late to decent results. We'll see how that goes. Here's how the Orioles are going to line up against Jose Brios. Cedric Mullins once again leading off. Adley Rutschman, Anthony Santander, Ryan Mountcastle, Taryn Vavra, Austin Hayes, Rugnet Odor, Ramon Urias, and Jorge Mateo. Pretty similar lineup to yesterday. Pretty similar odds to yesterday. Fangraph's given the Jays a 58% chance at winning this one. How did that work out yesterday with slightly even better odds? Probabilities are just that. Brios has faced these Orioles for 70 plate appearances. 28.6% strikeout rate, which is very good by Brios' standards. 269 expected weighted on base average. Again, that's the stat cast stat that looks at strikeout walk and quality of contact. That's a very, very good number. He's been downright dominant against Odor against Brett Phillips, who isn't starting and against Anthony Santander. Mount Castle's a name to watch, not only because he has the Jays number, it seems, but he's two for eight against Barrios with two home runs, 250 batting average. And then big old two home runs. Uh, Rutschman has also homered off of Jose Barrios. When Brio saw this team on June 15th, he had one of his best starts of the season. In my estimation, three earned over seven innings doesn't sound that great, but he only allowed three hits. He didn't walk anyone and he had eight strikeouts. It's pretty good. As far as 2022 Jose Brios is concerned. So that's what you're looking at tonight. Again, it's uh 705. First pitch, Ben Wagner on the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Blair and Barker will have Jays talk for you post game, And then the Jays have an off day tomorrow. Got to tell you, heading into an off day, coming off a win and salvaging one in a series, it's going to feel a whole lot better than an off day after getting swept. Where, I don't know, are you doing another players-only meeting? Are you trying to do a bowling trip or something like that to to shake the the energy off Cleveland's coming into town this weekend and they're solid. They're fighting for a playoff spot. It looks like barring uh, them juggling the rotation. They're going to have their top starters available for them. Doesn't get any easier after that. 
It's Baltimore again, and then it's a four set at the Yankees. The time for any soft spots in the schedule are behind you unless you really believe that three at Boston is going to be a saving grace. All of that is to say every game feels pretty big right now because you're only two games up on a playoff spot. We spent a lot of time today talking about what is most concerning for listeners or, or our guests. What is less concerning? What are you watching for the next little bit? We're almost at the part of the season where you should probably be checking the scores and the standings every day. I don't think, I don't think you're quite there. And I'm always of the mind too. When, when a team is playing worse, uh, you kind of just want to, you only want to look after a win. Um, it can be painful to look after a loss, see the lead narrowing or uh, your spot dropping right now. It's worth reminding everyone and yourself that the Jays are in the top wildcard spot. They are 10 games over 500. Does that make you comfortable? No, probably not. They've got to get a win here. If they lose Baltimore only be one game back. That's not going to feel great. The Mariners are creeping in. It's going to be a tense seven weeks or so here. I can already feel it. Last year, the Jays, uh, by the way, I started at Sportsnet the day after the Jays were eliminated. Not the best of situations to to start off in. Let's hope uh, better things are ahead for us the rest of the way. By the way, with the Jays off tomorrow, we'll still be here three to five. We're going to have Ben Ennis and J.D. Bunkus on. We're going to reunite the good show, and we're going to do an hour with them. Uh, Then we've got a special, a couple special guests in the second half of the show tomorrow. I'll keep those to myself for now, but something to look forward to on a non-game day when we won't have a game to tee up. Again, Jays going as follows. Jose Brios against Dean Kramer at 7.05. The Jays will go Guriel, Guerrero, Kirk, Hernandez, Bichette, Chapman, Tapia, Jansen, Espinal. Tapia's in center field with uh, three center fielders that the Jays trust more in center, all on the bench in Merrifield, Zimmer, and Jackie Bradley Jr. It's a funny, funny roster construction these days. Uh, the Jays looking to get back on the winning side. Um, thank you to Drew Fairservice for coming on with us a little earlier. Kylie McDaniel for giving us kind of the high-level look at where the Jays organization is. Jen McCaffrey of The Athletic for giving us some insight into Jackie Bradley Jr. And thank you to all of you. Like over 300 tweets and texts today. Whew. It's a lot. It was fun. And we appreciate it. By the way, Maurice from Caledon asks quickly, do you think Danny Jansen back catching is going to help some pitchers settle down? Uh, He's been back a little while now. I don't know if that's going to materialize fully. And to the person asking about the rehearsal, uh, no, it's not on Netflix. I believe it's on Crave if you have that. Uh, So thanks to Kylie as well for uh, having some fun with us around uh, potential Mariners, potential Blue Jays fan, Nathan Fielder. We will be back three to five tomorrow. Good show roundtable and a couple special guests. Fan drive times next. And then Ben Wagner on the call 705. Blair and Barker have Jay's talk for you post game. I'm back tomorrow. Blake Murphy on sports at 590.